Somebody's ready for audience participation. <laughs> uh, w- welcome to the Center for Humanistic Inquiry. Uh, I'm going to engage in a quick act of cross-promotion before we get down to business today. And that's just to let you know that every Wednesday at 4.30, there is something interesting going on in here. I can't promise it'll be as interesting as what's going to happen today. But something interesting will be happening in here. There will be food. There will be wine. There will be an intellectual experience. So... Uh, make it part of your weekly, uh, weekly routine. All right. Um, and I wanted, um, I could, I could list every single one, but, uh, I wanted to just promote one in particular, just because it's so connected to what we're doing today on November 1st, uh, editors and contributors from Massachusetts review will be here to talk, uh, talk with us about writing, writing as scholars for a broader audience. Um, so that's obviously connected to this, uh, this theme of public scholarship, but it is also connected to James Baldwin because their latest issue, of which there are some free copies, I encourage you to take over there, don't all fight at once, (laughs) Uh, features uh, artwork from uh, God Made My Face, the James Baldwin exhibition that was open at the Mead, and uh, and has uh, James Baldwin's photo right here on the cover. And, um, and so they've been thinking a lot about James Baldwin in recent months, too. So it might be a place to come continue that conversation. All right. Um, and I'm going to put this one up here among the ones to be claimed. All right. So today, our event is called Podcasting is Public Scholarship, Finding James Baldwin with Frank Leon Roberts and Aldo B. Martin. Uh, Frank, colleague of mine in the English department. I'm Chris Grobe. English professor, director of this center, and uh, Aldo B. Martin, his collaborator in this podcast. And uh, I think we should just get right down to talking about that podcast. All right. So um, I first became aware of the materials that underlie this podcast at the opening reception for God Made My Face, that exhibition uh, of James Baldwin materials over at the Mead Art Museum. And uh, you know, we were standing in that slightly strange wood-paneled room, uh, eating canapes or whatever you do. Yeah. And uh, I remember standing around with um, Professor Roberts and uh, Robert Reed Farr, Harvard professor, also a Baldwin scholar. Um, and, you know, you were talking excitedly about having recently gotten your hands on a full run of these magpie literary magazines. And I must confess, I didn't know exactly what they were, but I could see by the way that his eyes lit up, yeah. that he knew what they were and they were very exciting. And so 
it was really cool. I got to witness you two kind of brainstorming about, well, what are we going to do with this? Like uh, you were saying, um, am I going to edit an anthology of these works? Am I going to uh, write an academic journal article? Am I going to find a way to incorporate this into my book manuscript? But the one possibility that didn't come up then was a podcast. And months later, all of a sudden, you had a podcast. And so it's that gap that I want to start by talking about. Uh, how did you come to the idea that what you should be doing with this this archive of Baldwin writings was making a podcast out of them? Yeah, yeah. Great question. Well, first, I just want to say <clears throat> congratulations to you, uh, dear brother, in this new capacity as director for the Center for Humanistic Inquiry, right? Thank so, you. Shout out to that. Um, uh, great question. Yeah, you know, um, I think for me, the appeal of a podcast um, was manifold. Um, I can think of at least three different reasons that I felt drawn to try to expand this project, if we want to call it that, in podcast form. The first had to do with, um, I think one of the things that podcasting can do or that we're, we're trying to do with this podcast mm -hmm. is quite simply sort of expand and rethink our understanding of the form and function of literary criticism. Yeah. Um, which I think is something that we as English professors are always kind of thinking about, right? And so this idea of podcasting as a mode of intellectual engagement thinks um, invites us to think about ways, uh, interesting ways to engage in literary criticism and what we might call the language of the public square. Mm -hmm. If we think about podcasting as one such example of the sort of language of the public square. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's particularly important um, when think, or I was thinking it was particularly important with somebody like Baldwin because so much of Baldwin's work has this populist appeal and so much of Baldwin's writing shows up in spaces and communities far outside the, mm -hmm. the academy. And so the question would become, if Baldwin's writing is always appearing in these spaces outside of the academy, why then would the literary, would the literary criticism on him uh, be sort of confined to the narrow confines of the academy proper or sort of proper um, academic research article? But then, right, secondly, kind of on the opposite end, on the exact opposite end, I really began to think about this idea of the podcast as a form of kind of scholarly rehearsal, mm -hmm. right? And so for those who've listened to the podcast, this idea of Baldwin in rehearsal comes up time and time again with, when thinking about these writings. Obviously, I think the literary value of the magpie stuff is that it allows us to sort of draw back the curtain on this mm -hmm. young writer who is rehearsing many of the themes that will become part and parcel of his corpus, brotherhood. Um, love, religion, family. Mm -hmm. But then as a scholar, you know, the podcast was is literally allowing me a way to kind of rehearse through ideas, you mm -hmm. know, quite literally. And so the idea that the podcast could um, be this form of scholarly rehearsal was the second piece. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, and this was, I think, really important for Aldo and I, the podcasting has really allowed us, I think, to engage in a politics of artistic collaboration, I would mm. call it, mm. with Baldwin, that could never happen in the context of a traditional scholarly article. And yeah. so what I'm, right? Because, and when I say artistic collaboration, I don't mean collaboration between Aldo and I, I mean collab collaboration literally between us and Baldwin beyond the grave in the sense that, you know, you have all these moments, let me back up, I will say this, when I first listened to, when I first read the material uh, and, the, and the magpie, the first thing that, that stood out, I think, to both of us was the oral quality of the work. 
Mm. Um, or that there was something about it that seemed like it would lend itself well to theatrical adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, in presenting this work, we get to make our own artistic choices about what kind of music we're going to use. The choice, for instance, to use black women, uh, including black women from outside of the United States in some instances, as narrators to represent Baldwin's voice, Mm -hmm. suddenly... Um, becomes our way of becoming artistic collaborators with Baldwin. And so I would say those three things, sort of podcasting as rehearsal, um, uh, podcasting as a way of expanding our understanding of the form and function of literary criticism, and then podcasting as this form of artistic collaboration is sort of how this kind of crazy thing came to be so quickly. Yeah, that's great. Um, Since you brought it in the direction of collaboration, I want to bring Aldo into the conversation. And ask you both about the importance of co-hosting, the importance of doing this work together and with each other. And while you're thinking about that, I wanted to play a a clip from one of your episodes that uh, captures the vibe, I would say, of the podcast. All right. So Frank, man, it's, it's, I've known you for, it's it's been many years. It's been before you were Doctor Frank Leon Roberts. I knew you as Frank. You knew me as Frankie. Frankie. We took it way back. You knew me since adolescent Frankie. Adolescent Frankie. See, when we met, I, I was in my early twenties. You were in your late teens. I believe That's you were right. still a senior in high school. Yeah. We worked at this. I'm not even going to mention the name of the store. That's right. But uh, it was a major retail location. New York Landmark. New York Landmark. If you know, you know. And we were folding clothes. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Fervently and efficiently. (laughs) I hated that job. I did hate that job. Can we tell the people what that job was? Nah. (laughs) We worked at the Gap. We worked at the Gap. I was a college student. He was a high school student. And it was, you know. It was the gap. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. For all of you that are here, thank you so much for making the time to come listen to two old guys and myself talk. So <laughs> greatly appreciate that. But before I answer that question, if you don't mind, I'd like to get to the first question as to why the podcast. Because for me, it wasn't so much why. It was more of a why not, right? Because I, I think many of us would agree that James Baldwin is probably one of the more notable figures of the 20th century for those of us who lived in the 20th century, right? And and I think this, this his popularity is underlined by the the litany of biographies that are written about him, right? Especially after he died. And I would imagine his 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 legend might even grow some more as there might be another generation of biographies and and books and articles written about him in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so this idea of writing a book about James Baldwin, which I think is, is necessary, the exercise of writing a book isn't new, right? Like it's, it's, it's almost like the, of course, I'm going to write a book on James Baldwin, especially if there's new material. But I thought, well, why not a podcast? And I thought, is there, a, is there a podcast that's dedicated to James Baldwin? And so I did a search, and I think I found one or two, maybe three. And when I saw those, I said, well, how many of these are dedicated to his time as a high school writer, right? As, a, as an adolescent writer. 
And the answer was none of them. So then the question really became, well, then why not us, right? Why not us create that? And the idea of creating something that was the first of its kind, right? Unique. I mean, not the podcast were the first one, but this specific subtext or subtitle, I, why not us? And so it just became, it was, it was a natural idea for myself and, then for, and for Frank, of course. And then when we pressed record, it was just, it just went from there. And so to your point or to your question about working on a project like this in tandem with somebody else, listen, let's be frank here, right? <laughs> Honestly, so Frank represents the academic language to this. He rep- he's a Baldwin expert in my, in my eyes. Like everything I've learned about Baldwin, I think, in the past few weeks has been from Frank, or at least Frank has pointed me in the direction of where to find the information, right? And I myself, as a non-academic, as just this regular everyday guy, why not make this accessible to everybody involved, right? Because it's not just academics that like Baldwin. There's regular people that like Baldwin. Well, I don't mean regular, you know what I mean? Non-academics, right? Who like Baldwin. And and I thought it, it, w- it would fit. And the other part is, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, Frank is really funny. It's actually the other way around. I just pick up, and, and then I think we just play off of it. Because when he first told me about these Magpie materials, we were at my house. Yeah. We were in my basement, and my wife was there. And she was just listening to us talk about this. And she was like, ooh, can I be part of the conversation? I was like, no, my sister. You got to get your own. But no, we let her in. And we let her in. But it was just infectious to, to, to be a part of. And it was like, yeah, why don't we just press record? And it makes, I think, for a better listening experience for the audience. At least I hope it does. Yeah. Frank, I want to follow up on that and say, so you could sit in your office reading this stuff and coming up with your interpretations of it. Like for you, the value in doing it, I don't know, like in community and within this kind of relationship or friendship, like what's what's the value for you in that? Yeah. um, I mean, part of it has to do with, I've always been really fascinated with the question or the phenomenon, we should call it, of Baldwin's expansive and splintered readership. Hmm. which I think really is unique in the black radical tradition. I really can't think of, um, and I see a lot of really smart folks in the room, smarter, far smarter than me. You can uh, check me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of another figure in black literary, political, or sort of cultural history who has quite as, quite as splintered an audience in the way that James Baldwin does. In the sense that, I mean, think about it. Black radicals love James Baldwin. And guess what? White liberals love James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And straight black folk love James Baldwin. And queer white folk and queer every folk love James Baldwin. And young people love Baldwin. And old people and the college educated heads love Baldwin. And the non-college educated the immigrants. So right. So there's something about mm-hmm. to answer the question, there's something to me about Baldwin, with my background really in political organizing, that is the perfect sort of figure with which to do coalitional work because his audience itself is uniquely coalitional and expansive. And so the opportunity to be in conversation and dialogue with a brother who I've known for 20 years or more, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well over 20 years, actually. Um, 
it says something about Baldwin's unique ability to bring folks together who might not necessarily be in collaboration. And so that's why I was really interested in. And if I could disclose, um, Brother Aldo talked about um, his wife getting in. His wife, you ready? Drum roll. Oh, man. All I'm right. not, you know, is <laughs> the right. voice of Elena from, uh, what is it? Elena from Elena 7B. From 3B. 3B, who is the... Um, one of the narrators. One of the narrators. Yeah. And so I say that to say it suddenly became this communal project that allowed me to do this work. Lastly, I will say to the sort of larger point, which I think makes me a better literary critic and Baldwin scholar, mm -hmm. because it keeps me not only in a black radical tradition of community engagement, mm -hmm. but also it allows me to think through elements of Baldwin that, quite frankly, I may not have considered. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, for those reasons, the podcast becomes this sort of conduit for community engagement and a more expansive understanding of Baldwin's um, legacy and reach. Yeah. I think I'm going to pivot to the next clip we have. Oh, okay. And this is an example of uh, something that we don't we don't quite in this clip get to the point at which it is applied to mm -hmm. an interpretation of one of Baldwin's texts, yeah. but it starts unassumingly as just swapping personal stories, <laughs> right? But it's great to hear how it that that leads naturally, as mm -hmm. if inevitably, toward talking about particular works by Baldwin. And I want to play this and ask you to talk about I don't know the the purpose or the craft behind embedding your readings of Baldwin texts in these kinds of shared personal stories. Okay. I do want to get to something though. Yeah. We mentioned it before. Unk. <laughs> you and I have been referred to as Unk. Yes, we have. At different parts in our life. And each time it was a, I'd love to hear your story. Do you mind if I go first? Please. I need to get this off my chest. Yeah. <laughs> the unk narratives begin now. The unk confessions. <laughs> the unk confessions. Mm -hmm. And then young homie goes, yo, unk, let me ask you a question. Uh, and I said, whoa, whoa, hold up. Right. Time out. <laughs> Pause. When did I become unk? I love it. I got it real. It was so, it was so smooth the way it happened. I was buying watermelon. Of all stereotypical activities a black man could be engaged in. Where were you buying this watermelon? On 125. So it, the stereotypes continue, but they're joyous. I'm so joyful in my recounting of that, of that stereotypical experience. Yes, I was buying watermelon on 125th Street, and I'm passing the money to this young brother. And he just says, um, appreciate you, Unc. And I also, like you, when you hear it for the first time, when you think you're young in your mind and you are reminded in that moment that the world does not see you that way, they don't. it's like this. That was funny. Yeah. That was good. No, that was, that was, that was, I remember that. Like, it just, it just went there. We don't intend. Okay. When we do this thing, we do not say insert humor here. Yeah. We, 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 we come into it being serious. Yeah. And studious, yeah. mm -hmm. but somehow Frank always seems to get me off track, and we get into oh, into stuff friend. like that. But go go on. So then, what happened after that? How you connected it? Well, a couple of things. I mean, do I have to do that thing that uh, black folks have been doing for two hundred years, where there's this moment of translation that needs to happen? So perhaps mm -hmm. for those unfamiliar, unk in the black uh, communal tradition refers to this uncle figure, um, and so people unk is an abbreviation for uncle. But to your earlier uh, sort of question about how 
Um, this particular union lends itself to a sort of broader way of interpreting Baldwin. Mm -hmm. That's actually something that I haven't really heard in discussions of Baldwin. Baldwin, in many ways, and we talked about this in that episode, is the kind of quintessential uncle figure. How many times have we often heard Baldwin refer to, at least in the context of like social media, as Uncle Jimmy? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It's really this idea of Baldwin as an elder statesman, mm -hmm. right? And so this moment of sharing the kind of existential crisis when you think you're young and the younger brother says, hey, unk, to remind you that you are that you were unk, their uncle in their mind, becomes a way of thinking about how Baldwin becomes the uncle figure par excellence, who is always the sort of statesman and elder figure that we find ourselves gathering at his footsteps mm -hmm. um, to impart um, to embark on a, a, a knowledge journey. And so for me, that was another example of how this kind of conversation then allows me to think about Uncle Jimmy. Mm -hmm. as its own sort of formation worth a kind of theorizing about Baldwin's status as a kind of statesman in the black radical imagination. Yeah, and I think I remember that the next place it goes in that particular episode of the podcast is to The Fire Next Time, yeah. Yeah. which is framed as a letter to a nephew from an uncle. That's right. And I would just like either of you to, to talk about, I don't know, like what what dimension sharing those stories gives to you in interpreting that rhetorical choice of Baldwin. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that he was referred to as uncle Jimmy. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize that this, this, that's like new knowledge to me, but it was another connection that I had with him. Right. Because part of this podcast journey is I'm learning a lot as well. I thought I knew a lot about him. Now I'm learning more. Right. And so this notion of uncle Jimmy, I'm like, wait, I've, I've been called Unc too. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we have some sort of connection there. So I thought that was a really brilliant read that Frank had because he referred to, like you said, the uh, the uh, the essay in the fire next time, letter to my nephew. I was like, wait. So he's always embodied this. Mm -hmm. So this isn't like a past tense title that he had. This is something that he's had uh, while he was alive. And I thought that was brilliant. And I thought that was something that was relatable to it because I was in Frank's class earlier today with these. I was in the class. Those those kids taught me. Like I learned new words. I learned new phrases. It was really cool. But there was one young lady who was speaking, and she was speaking from the immigrant experience. And it what she said resonated with me because, you know, I'm an immigrant. And one of the things that happens when you're an immigrant to a country is you you try to latch on to something that seems familiar in the new place that you're in, right? And whether it be a person or a piece of work or whatever, piece of art. And in this case, for me, uh, there was a part of James Baldwin that I could connect with. And so this unk thing was, yeah, I'll probably be called unk. Under normal circumstances, absolutely not. <laughs> but if you're going to call uh, James Baldwin unk, then who am I? So. And just really quickly, going back to that earlier point about podcasting as a form of kind of scholarly rehearsal. So in the essay, there will be an actual essay, right, to do that work. Yeah. One section in the essay is called Uncle Jimmy. And I'm sort of thinking through how this moment allows this this conversation and my own sort of um, begrudged uh, ascension to unk status, right, uh, uh, provides then this kind of identification with this literary moment in Baldwin's repertoire where he's writing to the to the young nephew and sort of making the suggestion that that's sort of how Baldwin lives on in a particular kind of black male imagination in terms of how he becomes a figure that we that we see ourselves passing through the door of Baldwin and his unk status so something like that yeah. again underscores the point 
that those thoughts, I would not have gone there had it not been for a crazy conversation yeah. in the basement, which I, uh, you know, Aldo's basement is very Ellisonian, subterranean. Think last scene of Invisible Man. It's like it is a work of art. Um, I wasn't going for that look, yeah. but I'll take it. it. But it is. I'll take it. It would not have happened had that conversation uh, yeah. in podcast form uh, not first incited it. Yeah. So uh, your 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 answer gets to uh, you feeling like feeling towards Baldwin as one unk to another, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there, I feel like there's also something going on where in thinking about the young Baldwin's writings in particular, you were finding yourselves in that kind of yeah. avuncular stance toward the young Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Ah. And I feel like, so I feel like you're working out something oh, about your positionality as someone writing about specifically the young Baldwin. Right. And I, I think there's a kind of, there's so much tenderness in the podcast toward teenage yeah. Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. That I think yeah. is uh, all wrapped up with a, an unk identity yeah. that is uh, is not the thing to be fearfully yeah. pushed away as a sign of middle yeah. age, yeah. but but is a role that you're yeah. happy or, or proud to embody. Yeah, which I would say, in handing the microphone uh, uh, to Aldo, makes the case then, or can make the case for the status of sort of juvenile literature yeah. as having value in sort of. Black, in, in yeah. black studies, right? Mm. Because one of the things that is interesting about this body of work, we're used to thinking about Baldwin writing about children. Baldwin's mm. right, uh, and we're used to dismissing juvenilia or children's literature as sort of child stuff. But sort of what I'm suggesting is that Baldwin is giving us a literary view of the world from the perspective of a black child, yeah. mm-hmm. right? That this is a child writing, and it, 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 it's, it becomes, again, still under, still undeveloped. I'm working through it. I'm rehearsing it. Mm-hmm. But something about the gifts of the black child, not as simply mm-hmm. that which we would speak to, but who can speak to us, mm-hmm. who better to show us than Baldwin doing it par excellence. So something about the status of childhood and the way in which we very often dismiss in sort of scholarly discussions of many writers' work, we dismiss the adolescent moment because, oh, they're just getting ready for the big time. But it's like actually that moment of Baldwin as a child, mm-hmm. I think, um, um, has value in terms of thinking about the, 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 the ideas of a black child thinking. You see him writing as a kid. And it's, again, like you said, it's very easy to dismiss that. Right. It's very easy to dismiss that for me. Not so much because I'm raising teenagers. Right. Like my older son is 16. My younger son is 13. So I can't help but sometimes look at them and think, wait, he was writing this at his age while I'm watching my son play video games. Right. So it's like, wow, this is this is this is phenomenal. Right. It's really phenomenal. But I would like to argue that. And this might be controversial, but it really seems to me that the Magpie and Clinton High School, well, the Magpie within Clinton High School, more so the Magpie than Clinton High School, was really an incubator for young Baldwin. And I'm not too sure what form of Baldwin we would have gotten without the Magpie, because doing that work, he worked with other kids who were like-minded literary minded, creatively minded. And it was the first time that he was like that. He wrote for his middle school, excuse me, his junior high school uh, um, publication called the, uh, the the Douglas Pilot, right? He went to Frederick Douglas Academy. 
And when you read about that, he was the primary writer. He was the guy that was orchestrating it all, right, amongst his peers. So there wasn't anyone on his level. He was he was ahead of you know ahead of the class with that. But here with the magpie, there's there's others. And I think there was a healthy competition between all those kids that were writing. And I think it really helped to uh, um, fuel his fire. Maybe he would disagree with me if he were alive. Maybe those who know him best would disagree. But I, I really believe we might have a bit of a different Baldwin had it not been for the magpie. And quickly, those others are people like Richard Avedon and Sol Stein. His teacher at the time is Abe Mariupol, the writer of Strange Fruit. Um, who was also a, a, a former Magpie contributor. So there was something about that that publication that is interesting, not only for Baldwin, but it is this sort of subterranean history of New York City writers and artists who are sort of um, circulating around uh, around this literary publication in the 1940s. Yeah. Great. Okay, we've talked about this literature enough. I feel like we should get an example of it oh, in front yeah. of us. Oh, man, let's do it. All right. So I've got a clip uh, from one of your episodes. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast, uh, these episodes are built around readings of materials from the magpie. Yeah. And this is a reading included in one episode yeah. of a piece called The Dream. The dream. One day I dreamed you left me, and all the earth grew still, and all the sturdy people from yonder sturdy hill walked past me with averted eye. They looked away and passed me by. All the blushing flowers, and all the tender grass, and all the rushing waters, and every underpass, and the still and stony place where leaves cast shadows fine as lace. Every place we'd ever been, throughout all the land, looked at me with pity, and I longed to feel your hand, once again upon my own. But oh, the land and sea stood and sang when I awoke, and found you were with me. James Baldwin So you talked about one of the joys of this podcast being uh, getting to decide how that sounded, collaborating with Baldwin. I wonder if you could share a little bit about with that particular piece, um, what was meaningful to you about recording it that way, seeing it performed that way, yeah. making it sound that way. Yeah. You want me to take this one? So the, uh, the young lady you just heard reading that, that's my wife, and I think she just has an amazing voice. Because I hear it every day. I'm like, can you say that again? Can you? <laughs> and, and I think that there's something about... Frank and I discussed that. Who should be reading this? Mm. Right? And so it wasn't that my wife got to read it because that's my wife. It was... We agreed that... Or at least we think and we hope. We thought Baldwin might approve that. Approve of it. Like there would be some sort of balance. Some sort of feminine voice in the podcast as well. Uh, so it's not just, you know, male dominated, but to have some sort of balance and, and have 
her voice is kind of the centerpiece of the episode, right? Yeah, you can listen to Frank and I talk about Unk and, and watermelons and all that other fun stuff. But I think there's something peaceful and just and that Baldwin would approve about having a feminine voice be the centerpiece of it. And then adding some some fun music to it that would sound okay. It wasn't like there was a, a selected track or selected playlist we wanted. It was just whatever felt right at that moment for that particular reading. That would make for a a uh, a, pre- a pleasurable listening experience for the audience. I hope. And and so that's where it comes in for me, the listening piece, right? Like ultimately, I would say what this whole thing is trying to do is is really do this Baldwinian thing, which mm. is how is it that Baldwin invites. Um, folks to gather together, all those constituencies, those sort of pockets of the left we might describe as that I was talking about, the old folk, the young folk, the uh, queer folk, the, the radical folk, whatever, to gather together to listen to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And so that there's something about Baldwin that invites that. And ultimately, what I think we're trying to do is say this is also an offering. Mm-hmm. The idea that these, pa- like, who knows what will happen with the Magpie Project, right? Who knows what will happen in terms of how I write about it, how, how it gets taken up. But what we do know is that this podcast becomes an offering that ephemeral as it may be, has some kind of legs to say, this is what this 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 material here is what it would sound like. And here's something that you can kind of take with you to listen to. So we thought about it as like this offering that we wanted to say. The world should know about these writings. You don't have to think it's great literature. We are, we don't, we're not overstating the case, mm-hmm. but it is something that the world should know about, right? And so part of what the podcast did was it said it was our way of saying, listen, do you know these writings exist? And we have at least 16 entries um, that really no one has talked about. Some of them no one has ever talked about. So here's what they sound like. Here's mm-hmm. our idea. Again, back to this idea of artistic collaboration. And then you do with it with you will. And so suddenly we become these artistic collaborators who get to give back to a broader public and say, okay, now you also engage in the work of interpretation. We're not just interpreters, but we are cultural producers in that way. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do with it. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question, Chris. I know we're getting toward time. You know, um, uh, when we were when we were originally um, coming up with the title, and you came up with the title, I remember. Um, Brother Aldo said to me, Frank, what is public scholarship? Hmm. And I'm like, oh, good question. You know, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I, I know the response, but I'm like, actually, this would be a great question for Brother Chris to tell us, can you think about, you've done such wonderful work in the context of your teaching and thinking, deep thinking about this issue of podcasts as a mode of scholarly engagement, literary engagement. Can you tell us about your work on the podcast on podcasts as a kind of um, extra literary form or media form, mm-hmm. um, and your understanding of that question that Aldo was asking: What is public scholarship for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question. My engagement with podcasting, to be clear, is at this point uh, entirely a matter of teaching and advising, and I think that's actually really important. Um, I now teach a course called Listening to Podcasts. I'm teaching it for the second time this semester. Um, but I created that course not because, uh, not primarily because I had an interest in podcasts, although I do, but because the, the student interest in podcasting was so overwhelming. And that when I offered opportunity for multimodal assignments where students could choose in what medium they would fulfill the terms of an assignment, 
so many of them wanted to do podcasts. And it felt like there was so much desire for the practice and so little space for reflecting mm. on that practice. But that, that my students here already intuited that scholarship could be done and could be done in a different way mm. through podcasting. The first place I encountered this was in a course called The Play of Ideas. There's a performance studies course that's all about thinking about what the embodied and like quasi-theatrical practices are in which intellectual culture happens. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's telling, actually, that that was the first place that I had students who were like, well, actually, intellectual culture happens in podcasts. Let's mm. figure that out. Mm. Um, and right before I taught the podcasting course for the first time, uh, actually, I, what I think were the first two senior theses in podcast form had just been submitted, one in English and one in Black Studies. Mm. Um, there are startling parallels between the two of them. Um, both students were working from an archive of recorded interviews with their mothers. Wow. This had been done entirely independently of one another, but they had both come upon these archives or created these archives of recordings and wanted to figure out how to put that in touch with the kind of things that they'd been learning, studying, producing in classrooms. And for me, like that work of figuring out how like the most intimate of things, uh, you know, a familial relationship um, relates to the kind of intellectual work that goes on our classrooms, got on in our classrooms. Um, like that to me is public scholarship, mm. that translational work, that connective work. And um, so that's what that phrase means to me. And I'm just following the brilliance of students in thinking that podcasts are a, a great channel through which to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I think that's I like an it. answer to your question, a good one. I, you I, see why I deferred <laughs> to you and, and didn't try myself. Yeah. No, I, I like it. I mean, honestly, I, again, I never heard of that term until I saw it written down on the email, mm -hmm. right? Uh, talking about coming, uh, inviting to talk here. And then I thought about public scholarship and I thought about, wait, so this, po this podcast kind of is that. Absolutely. And, and it really made me think of, of a few things, right? Like, I hope I don't get too long-winded here. But if you think about, okay, let me just start with this. About 20% of the American population is illiterate. 20%, so two out of 10 people. And then 54% of American adults read below a sixth grade level. So that's, that's, that's a lot of people. And podcasting or podcasts have this, this ability to meet the audience where they are at, mm -hmm. where, whereas a book might not, mm -hmm. right? And podcasts help to make things accessible. So think about, all right, so real, real quick, real quick story, um, and I'm, I'm going to try to keep it brief. I think about September 11, 2001, right? And for the first part of the 21st century, September 11th was the story, right? Up until the pandemic, right? It was the event of the 21st century. And it was on the forefront of everyone's mind, especially in the first 10 years. Mm -hmm. And if you remember 2003, maybe 2004, the 9-11 uh, the commission was created, right? Where it was their job to uh, uh, discover what happened and then report to the people what happened, right? Why 9-11 happened. And in 2004, maybe 2005, they published the 9-11 Commission Report. Mm -hmm. So clearly this is a topic that 
everyone was interested in America, right? But how many people read it? And when you think about the 54% of adults that read below a sixth grade level, how many people didn't read it because they're intimidated by a book? The 54% to me doesn't represent people who don't want to read, people who can't read, people who are lazy. It represents people that might be intimidated by a book. And so even with the topic such as 9-11, they still didn't go to it. I say all that to say, imagine there's a podcast that takes a literary topic and connects societal issues, political thoughts, pop culture references, <laughs> names like Unk, <laughs> uh, and houses it in a vehicle of fun, of laughter and music, and makes literature an enjoyable experience that it might make somebody who might read below a certain level, might make them say, hey, you know what? I want to have that type of joy when it comes to literacy. I want to read something. I want to, I want to, I want to talk to a friend of mine about something like that and laugh about certain pages of a book. So I thought that that's the power of the podcast. And I hope that's the power of this podcast. And, and I hope that makes sense because, again, like I said, a podcast of this nature has this ability to meet the audience where they're at. And so thank you so much for, for bringing that title to my attention because I, I didn't know. I was like, actually, yes. It is public scholarship, yes. I was just trying to describe what you're doing. <laughs> um, all right. So speaking of turning to the audience, uh, we now have some time for questions from the audience. And um, yeah. So I was thinking about serialization. Hmm. And then all of a sudden you hit me with the word offering. And then it struck me that a serialized offering, it's a liturgy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when I heard the voice of the reader bringing the text all of a sudden the magic of the troubadour you know bringing the text to orality mm. it's happening in this magic voice of this this woman and is the voice the magic voice of of the young poet and all of a sudden the possibility that that gets repeated like with the next podcast, and the next podcast, and the next podcast. So it not only creates uh, the interpretation, but it creates that, um, it creates that uh, finesse and delicacy of repetition of something that you can relish in. And so um, I'm fascinated. I, I think uh, the, the, the same music, Every time cues you into the liturgy, and uh, I really see this as a as a thing that can be done that you're doing. And thank you. Thank oh, man. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you. So Comment on liturgical yeah, <laughs> approaches no. to oh, liturgy. Ever the theological, ever the theologian, um, uh, brother Benigno. Um, I think so. The short, you know, Diana Taylor famously talks about that distinction between the archive and the repertoire. We're to rehearse the argument really quickly. Of course, the archive is the serious stuff that we are told is where the preservation of culture happens in the letters and in the poems and in the text. But part of what I think podcasting belongs to is that tradition of the repertoire. All of those embodied and media slash virtual forms that tell a story and invite um, listener 
to not simply consume the text, but then become an active participant in it. And so there's something about how the podcast allows us to do do that. And it allows Baldwin to be this space where people are creating a new repertoire. And that's also something that Mm -hmm. could not happen if this were only in book form, right? And this being either the writings themselves or the attendant scholarly criticism on it. But in the podcast form, we suddenly are outside of the realm of simply the archive, and we are now into that to that more expansive and rich uh, realm of the repertoire. And so to me, that's the way I think about it. Yeah. Um, by the way, people who have questions should wave their hands at our wonderful impresario, Nell, over there. And there's a hand back in the corner as well. But uh, Katrina, you have a mic now, too. Actually, that was the first thing I was going to say is I don't want to take student space. So why don't you go ahead and I can follow you. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Um, I guess um, sort of towards the end, you were talking about um, like literacy and how podcasting can, you know, make literacy more um, available to, you know, different parts of society. And I guess I kind of just wanted to hear your thoughts on um, how podcasting and especially podcasting on literal, uh, liter, like writing works and that sort of thing, um, can make academia more accessible for just like the general population. Because I think that's something that I've noticed, um, recently, whether that's, um, in readings for classes or just like outside of school things, I've noticed a lot of times that like information in academia tends to be extremely inaccessible and extremely elitist. And so I kind of just wanted to, know either of you guys' thoughts on, you know, how podcasting can help kind of challenge that idea. Can I? Um, thank you for the question. I, I've been a, I've been a special education teacher now for about 18 years, right? This is the year 18 for me. And the amount of kids that I've worked with who are special needs and not in New York city, that's, that's where I'm from. The amount of kids that, you know, read below level, but in part because there's no enjoyment of what they're reading, right? There's no, they don't see the end game. And part of that is, you know, probably their age or something like that, but there isn't anything enticing. And and I think with books, and I love books, I love books, but the people who write the books are writing it to a certain audience that understands the way that they're writing it. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a small... Uh, population. That's a small portion. And I'm not suggesting that these authors dumb it down. I'm just saying this is a, this is a fact. So we need to find a way that kind of introduces other people to this as well. And so I think what a podcast can do, it can, especially a podcast of this nature, it can operate as a sort of supplement, right? Not a substitute, but certainly a supplement where people can find the joy in reading. Uh, listen, uh, in, if you've heard the podcast, uh, episode, no, chapter three called Discovery, where Frank and I discuss how we first met Baldwin, right? Irrespective of each other. And, and I, I met Baldwin riding the subway on, on my way to work at that silly job that I don't want to talk about, <laughs> right? And it, it was, it was a, I remember it like it was yesterday. And it kind of was yesterday because I'm not that old, yeah. right? But I remember like it was yesterday. And it was the joy that I found in reading at that moment that that led me to read even more, right? And and certainly not the best reader in the world, but I love it. 
I love it. And I think a podcast can help people find joy in reading. I hope that answers your question to some degree. Thank you. Um, thank you both so much. And um, I'm really looking forward to listening to the podcast. So I've maybe kind of... Uh, question about decisions, but then I'm really interested in your production processes, which we haven't gotten to. Um, I was really struck by listening to that reading and your choice about the person who read and how that challenged the orality of that and understanding embodiment and how that made me read and listen differently, um, such that it invited a desire to listen again, wow. right? And so it would change kind of my interpretive lens. And then I was really also struck by this comment that you made about um, juvenile literature and voices. And so then it made me wonder, have you had a teen as one of your readers and how that would impact my <laughs> thinking and listening? So that's one, because of course I've not yet had the opportunity Um to listen, but I think that would be extraordinary as well to, to hear what I imagine would be a younger sounding voice. And then I'm just curious, is it scripted? How do you make these decisions? How much time is there sort of, I mean, it sounds sort of so formulaic in a way, but I'm just curious for each episode, how much time and discussion and decision making and maybe even arguments are you having? Cause collaborative work is not always easy. And, um, so, and then the final thing is, you know, I feel like this is the fact that we even have to put the adjective public in front of scholarship bothers me yeah. because I think the whole point of the university as it was conceived was actually to be public scholarship. And per your lovely comment, we've lost that in some way that now it needs this adjective. And I really hope there's more work like this because I listen to a lot of podcasts, All right. maybe even more than that I might be reading at any particular moment if we don't count the class prep and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I'm interested in it for what orality gives us that's so different than the written text. So I just lumped a lot in there. Maybe I just need to take you both to or three of you to lunch, but I'm just really appreciative of what you're doing. I know that these two have uh, lots, uh, lots that I'm, I'm going to say quickly, um, just some programming, programming notes. So there is a new episode that is out today, right? Yeah, that is yeah. just, that's literally, I haven't even heard it yet. Um, <laughs> I actually had never listened to a uh, confession, had never really listened to a podcast. I know, uh, in, um, in its entirety prior to this. So I really was <laughs> new to this. This was the podcast and is the podcast connoisseur. Um, it is in the works uh, to have a young voice. I'll let <laughs> Brother Aldo disclose or not who we were thinking about for that. There are future episodes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, I think that this really is a project that does, um, as, you, as you so beautifully framed it, invite us to think about how these oral performances and oral offerings um, allow us to, um, to listen differently, to listen in detail, as Alexander Vasquez would say. Um, uh, to Baldwin again, and how Baldwin again is birthed to a new generation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was important for us to say, actually, it would be, first of all, you don't want to hear me reading it, right? Like the, the last thing you want to hear is like Frank trying to read one of these poems. <laughs> it would seem so, it, would just, right. it really would sound like, uh, like, 
like a professor trying to trying to be hip, right? And it's like it wouldn't it wouldn't work. Whereas you have these voices that are literally Baldwin is coming to us in a totally different way. And so that was very much part of it. the collaborative process. I mean, this kind of took forever, right? And it was quick. I mean, in the sense that none of this was scripted. It often yeah. happened with with me in particular on like four hours of sleep coming from Amherst to New York, back to Harlem on the weekends and being like, brother Aldo, I really, do we ha- like, can we not do this? Do we have to do it? And Aldo like, what are you talking about? I might not see you again till January. Get your ass over here. You know, I didn't and, say and, that <laughs> for the record. I didn't say that. <laughs> you know, which is to say it really, you know, it really was um, the collaborative Aldo really does handle much of the technical aspects of it and allows me to simply show up and say, okay, what do we have to say about yeah. this writer who we both love so much? Yeah. So, so there's no, to your question, there's no arguments about any of it. None of it is scripted. Um, it's the only, <laughs> it's like, all right, Frank, man, we're going to record this week. Yes. This week comes. Frank is like, hey, listen, can we do it next week? <laughs> and, and so that, that's, that's, that's really it. So when we come together and discuss it, it's just, it just flows. So there's really no argument about it in terms of the technological stuff or technical stuff, excuse me, uh, behind the scenes, man, we just, I, I just do it in my basement. <laughs> there's no fancy studio. I just mix it on that and we just add what works and I send it to Frank. Does this sound good? Yes. No. Cool. And then we put it out. And it's in terms of putting a teenage voice to it, we had that idea. We had that idea for the last episode. I wanted uh, one of my sons to read it. And so I had him read it the other day and I was like, okay, I need another teenager. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So we'll try, we'll try my son. We'll see how he does. <laughs> we'll see how he does. Uh, he's, he's up next for the audition and <laughs> he might not make the cut. I don't know, you know, so I don't know. But, but thank you so much for, for, for your kind words. It's, a, it's really a fun process. And when we were recorded, how much fun is it? It's a lot of fun. And there's so much that gets left, actually, on the cutting room. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of jokes. There's a, there's a lot of everything. So it's a, it's a fun process. There's no stress involved whatsoever. And I, I honestly, I wish Baldwin would have wrote 30 yeah. entries because that would have meant 30 episodes. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, we have, to, we have to stop it at 17 or 18 or something like that. So I hope that answers your question. It does. Thank you. Okay. I think we have time for one more question, and then we'll move to the more casual part of the evening. So take it away. Hi. Um, I guess my question is, so thank you. Um, and I, I listen to your podcast, really good stuff. But um, so we've been talking about sort of the, the utility of podcasting as like a, a public scholarship. But to tell you a story, back in undergrad, so I'm I'm glad you mentioned about podcasting as an alternative to a thesis. Yeah. Um, but I had that idea um, for my in my undergrad, and I was told that that would present a difficulty in terms of getting it published because how do you peer review a podcast? Huh. How do you you know how do you fit a podcast in the mold of the academy yeah. and in the mold of of the typical Western scholarship? Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm curious, I mean, you know, um, Frank, you're, you're an established professor at this point. Um, so I, I don't, but as a junior scholar, I'm a PhD student in Afarama at UMass. Mm. And, um, I'm curious, how do you see the acceptance 
of podcasting as a public scholarship within the academy? Um, and how do you, cause, you know, I listen, I'm teaching a course right now and I'm, I'm thinking of in the future, um, you know, assigning this podcast in the syllabus. Oh, oh um, you should. Um, <laughs> you know, on, on James Baldwin. I mean, early James Baldwin. I think you do really good stuff here. Um, but then how do you push back against that? That grain in the academia and in you know traditional scholarship that talks about peer review, that talks about v- the validity of one's work through the nor- through the the, the normative um, ways of of scholarship. How do you grapple with that, or yeah. do you have any insights into yeah. that? So, quick, uh, two quick things. Number one, for me, it's not an either or. Right, I always conceive of this project again as both um, its own offering and a kind of rehearsal for um, that more traditional piece. Right, mm-hmm. and so. And I can already, you know, kind of in the throes of writing it, it feels so much better and to me reads so much better than had I tried to do it any other way, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm informed by conversations that simply would not, I have a frame, an interpretive frame for the work mm-hmm. that would not have happened had it not first been rehearsed through casual conversation with the friend I trust with these wonderful readings. Mm-hmm. Also, without disclosing, you know, too much, um, there have been, uh, uh, important literary journals that I would like to, uh, to publish in, publish this work in, that traditionally, as we know, for the junior scholar, for any scholar, the route is you write the essay, then you submit it, then you get the um, reviews back, and then we see how it goes. There's been a very fascinating turn that has happened with this where I've had journals say, actually, can you please submit this as an um, um, as a peer-reviewed essay? And so, which is to say, the podcasting then becomes this uh, form that invites a collaboration between the academy and the public and actually invites opportunities that wouldn't be there. Because otherwise, the, the difference would be me submitting a blind review and someone having no idea what's going on versus an editor saying in advance, this, we, we really want this to be in the pages of our, um, of our publication. So we would really like to work with you to think about how you can have that happen and we can also celebrate it in its current form. So I think that that's really one of the promising things that the podcast offers. I would just add that a great resource for thinking through alternatives to standard double-blind peer review as a way of thinking about how scholarly excellence is constructed and gatekept are uh, the editors at the Amherst College Press who I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. They have a page on their website about alternate models of review. And uh, I'm sure would welcome contact from you, from you about thinking that through. Yeah. I want to end by expressing some gratitudes. Thank you all for coming. Thank, uh, thanks to uh, Will and Pete from IT for setting up this amazingly complex thing that allowed us to both amplify in the room and record. Um, thank you to Nell Volkman, the program coordinator of the CHI, uh, who is responsible for everything from the copies of the Massachusetts Review to the, where the chairs are yeah. to getting all the here yeah. to yeah. basically everything. <laughs> and, and finally, thank you, thank you so much to the two of you for. Uh, <laughs> Thank you.